0: Genesis 2, 5 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the ground and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us. We thank you that in your wisdom, you have given your word to us written down. We are not left to the subjective imaginations of ourselves or of others. But we have your word before us inspired inerrant infallible. So would you grant by your Spirit's power the illumination that we need to see? Would you unclog our spiritual ears? Would you tamp down the noise that would distract us inwardly? Would you soften our hearts that we might be ready and willing to be shaped according to your revealed will in Scripture? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak? Would your power be on display as you change us, grow us? shape and conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, would you speak today? Heavenly Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. may be seated. I think we closed last week or at least a component of the closure uh, was the inevitability of worship and the inevitability of worship and that you become like that which you worship so there's an inevitability to it that because of how God has made us in his image he's made us with the basis of his image the canvas of spirituality, immortality, rationality. He painted that canvas with holiness and righteousness and knowledge. The consequence of that image was would be dominion. An expansive presence. The shaping of creation. And that form of the image, that knowledge, righteousness, holiness, we know... It becomes corrupted by sin. The canvas remains. There's still an inevitability that you are an immortal person. You are a spiritual person, which is, we're going to talk about this in just a second. You are a rational person. But when those things are no longer submitted to and serving to honor and glorify your maker... You deploy them in various ways to justify yourself, to satisfy yourself. And so idolatry becomes. Idolatry becomes this willing repainting a corruption where we take the canvas that God has given and we reshape it according to our image. We, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, we don't. Worship and serve the creator, but we worship and serve the creature, the created. So that mirror where we are supposed to reflect the glory of God, we begin to reflect anything and everything else. And thus we lose who we are. But as image bearers, this inevitability of worship shows up in how God creates men and women, how he creates them. Where he creates them, and to what purpose he creates them. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. That as image bearers, we are called to be worshipers who shape all of life for the glory of God. We see when, so let me kind of unpack maybe a, a, a difficulty that some people have with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, if you watch the History Channel too much, or maybe the Discovery Channel, they're going to kind of, or or if you were to pick up a a critical commentary of Genesis, they would say that there's two different creational accounts here. You have Genesis 1, that one editor wrote Genesis 1. This is what I learned in college. Uh, One editor wrote, or one person wrote Genesis 1. Another person or another editor came in and wrote Genesis 2, and they just kind of got squished together. That's not. It's not right. Okay, uh, and it's really it doesn't really uh, uh, go along with what the evidence that we have in the scriptures. Genesis one is the creation of the heavens and the earth, and really the ordering of the chaos, where God makes distinctions and He shapes and He puts things where they are. And he creates light and dark and land and sea and sky and land, whatever else. Right? He creates all these things. He says morning and eve- evening and morning. There's day, and He sets these distinctions and creates order. In order that would be necessary, a, a structure, a template, a scaffolding upon which he would paint, I guess I'm just into art these days, where he would paint his beautiful re- work of creation and ultimately, in time, his work of redemption. And what you have in Genesis 2 is not a contrasting, it's not a different creational account. You go from um, a... Telescope to a magnifying glass or a microscope. Telescope to a microscope where, where God zooms in. In the inspired literature of Genesis, God zooms in to the creation of Adam and Eve. He zooms in to the sixth day and says, this is what I did and this is why I did it. There was no shrub of the field, no had yet grown on the land, verse 5, and no plant of the field had yet been sprouted. That God creates in coming up to the creation of humanity, of men and women. That there seemed to be a, a potentiality in creation. That creation was on the cusp of something and what was needed was someone As the scripture says, uh, there was no man to work the ground. There was no one to cultivate it. That there was an intimacy and an um, intricate relationship between the creation of men and women, man and woman, and what creation was designed to be. So while humanity must be seen as distinct from creation, there is a dependency upon creation both for us, right? We need the sun and the moon and we need the the air and all the stuff, but creation also to be what it would be, to be everything that God had designed it to be. God designed creation to need the hands of men and women to cultivate it, to shape it, and to ultimately expand what we see in a minute in the garden So there's this capacity, latent, both the capacity in creation to become something more, right? It hasn't, there's no shrub yet. There's no plant of the field. Nothing sprouted. There's no rain yet because there's no man to work the ground. There had to be someone to take the potentiality of creation. What could be there? So who would this be? Well, the very representative of God. Men and women are made in the image of God. And then if if we go back to that Genesis chapter 1 passage, and God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, exercise dominion over it. And that dominion of image-bearing worshipers would help and make creation would extend creation into being something that it was meant to be. So that, and just imagine it because it's so, this is so far from our reality in a fallen world. But you imagine all of the beauty of creation. All the beauty that you've seen of creation from the the intricacies of a butterfly or a flower to the the magnificent vistas. If you've ever been out west and you've seen the the Grand Tetons or you've seen the the, uh, even if you've seen the Smokies, right? You can get these vistas. If you've seen the Grand Canyon or you see some of the images of space and you say, wow, look at the heavens declare the glory of God. But there's something about creation that needs, that is designed for dependence upon men and women to become everything that it ought to be. Because here's the problem. If we're created to exercise dominion, to to subdue the earth and help it become what God would have it to be. And if the form of the image of God is corrupted, and yet the basis remains, if the picture is corrupted and the canvas remains, that means that we still have the capability of dominion, we still have the capacity to subdue, but we no longer bear in the same way The uncorrupted image of God. And so we still exercise dominion. But in exercising dominion, we exercise fallen dominion. So simultaneously we see it later on in the book of Genesis. And we see it throughout human history. The great capacity of people to build things, create civilizations, establish culture, develop the arts and poetry and all the things that humanity does. Develop the technology where you could pull out your phone and FaceTime somebody in Uzbekistan or something this morning. I don't know anybody in Uzbekistan. It just came to mind. But you have these wonderful things that because of what, how God has made men and women, we've made all of these advancements. And yet coupled with every advancement is an advancement in the dominion of sin. We could go through how most recently within the last 20 years, 20, 30 years, the sweeping impact of the internet, both with its blessings and its profound curses. And you can attend that to every technological advance, the wonderful advances in medicine where... Cancers that were once a death sentence, now that because of medical advances, we're able to extend life. And yet some of those same advancements are used, or deployed to destroy life in the womb. And in some places of the world, to destroy life at the end of the last season in euthanasia. Do you see this exercising of dominion? There's a there's a capacity to create culture, and there's a capacity to create civilization. And yet, because we are doing, we have we haven't lost the ability. We've lost the ability to do it under the glory of God. And so, mixed with all of these, mixed with all of these, this grand capacity, we see this extension of wickedness. God created humanity for this capacity for dominion, but not just a capacity for dominion, but a capacity for worship. And the two are interrelated. And this is where we go afoul. Because fallen humanity in our sin, we worship and serve the create the creature rather than the created. I mean the, the creature rather than the creator. We worship and serve that which is made rather than the maker. We don't exercise our cultural development, our civilization development. We don't exercise our art, our poetry, our painting, our engineering, our medical work, our research, our English literature studies, our French literature studies, whatever you're into. Because we don't pursue those things for the glory of God, our exercise of dominion ends up corrupting while advancing rather than stewarding creation up into everything that it could be. Now, I know this this is a, I say this a lot, this is a thick layer of peanut butter. So I hope you followed me so far. God gave us the mandate for dominion. Dominion means we develop culture, civilization, structures, and ultimately we should have done this for the glory of God to demonstrate his wonder, his glory, his order, his structure. And yet, because we have failed at the point of worship, we do this, we continue to do it because we can't do anything else. It's inevitable that people get together, they make culture. It's inevitable that they make language, and they make written things, and they make these advancements. It's inevitable because of how God has made us. And because of our worship problem. We do it in service, oftentimes, at least in an intertwined within it, in the service of darkness. So how do we know that God made man with a capacity for worship? And again, worship and dominion go together. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust, verse 7, from the ground and breathed the breath of life. Into his nostrils. Distinction. Adam receives the breath of life. This is distinction. Nothing else is said to receive this. And the man became a living being. Became a spiritual being. He receives the very breath of God. This moment is mirrored with Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 20. After Jesus' resi- resi- resurrection, I almost said resignation, that's not like real. <laughs> I resign here. Uh, after his resurrection, he goes to his disciples. Excuse me, he, b- he breathes upon him and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. There's a a mirroring here. Why is it significant that you receive spiritual life from God, that you're created as a spiritual being? Well, that's how God tells us to worship. John chapter 4, verse 23, where this is Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember this story? Uh, But an hour is coming, Jesus says, and that is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit So if you're going to render worship to God, it must be spiritual worship. So there's a sense in which, and I don't have the glasses to tell me, but there's a sense in which there are some here this morning who have truly worshipped God because they've rendered spiritual worship. In their spirit, they've identified that God is most worthy. They've attributed to God all glory in their souls as they sing and as they pray. And even now, as you hear the word of God preached, there's something that's you're, you're giving spiritual worship. And yet there's some who are doing the exact same activity, but they're not doing it with a spiritual awareness, a spiritual awakeness that are just going through the motions and are not actually rendering true spiritual worship. You can do both. Both can be in the same room. I mean, you could see it all through the Old Testament. People bringing sacrifices, going through the motions, and the people bringing sacrifices truly believing that in that time and in that place. God said, this is the means of your forgiveness, believing that there's something ahead. They're believing the promises of God. They were experiencing the same thing, doing the same thing. So we're made for, we're, we're created living beings, the living spiritual beings receiving the breath of God. And we have this capacity unlike anything else in creation. Because God is spirit. We are given a, a spirit, a soul, in order that we might render true worship to God. That we're spiritual beings. And just because we fall into sin, that spirituality does not go out the window. You can't just like hit the cancel button on that part of you. Because you're a spiritual being, you will seek spiritual connection. You will worship. The capacity for worship in every human being is a mandate for worship in every human being. It's an inevitable result of being human. That you will attribute worth to everything. I mean, you will attribute worth to something ultimate worth, ultimate value, ultimate purpose that shapes your whole life. It's interesting that the word ship, like worship, is related to the word shape. Because you become like that which you worship. We're given the breath of life that we might worship God eventually before Christ, by the renewing of God's spirit, worship him in spirit and in truth. So we have the capacity for worship, but notice where God puts Adam. He places him in the context of worship. We have the capacity for it, spiritual beings to relate to the spirit, God, who is spirit In the Lord verse eight, the Lord planted a garden in Eden. Now it's significant that the garden is only a part of Eden. They are not coterminous. They they're not the same thing, right? Eden goes this far, the garden is here. So God plants a garden in Eden in the east, and he placed the man where there he placed the man he had formed. So Adam is not created in the garden. He's not created in Eden. He is taken from outside and he's placed. There is a intentionality for the context in which God places Adam in the garden. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground there every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God places Adam after creating him in this beautiful garden, in a beautiful place. It's like for a I saw one writer kind of liken it to a, a national park, the imagery of Eden. A beautiful, uncorrupted sanctuary. With, really with the sanctuary garden in the middle, full of these beautiful, and notice God is the Artist. Every tree pleasing in appearance. God's about you know he makes those some things are just like they that, like a potato. It does it does a job. It ain't pretty. It does I don't know I don't think potatoes are particularly pretty, um, but does a job and then he creates something like a you know I'm trying to think of like a like a star fruit. Like what in the world? Have anybody seen that? It's like a fruit looks like a like a mango or a papaya. Even a, like a broccoli is anyway okay. Um, but there there's there's beauty inherent to what God has placed him in so that God has painted so he's, he's created this man, he's created the man with the capacity to relate to him and he places him in the context to relate to him and to do the work that he gave him to do. Context matters. If you're in real estate, you know location, location, location. So he places him in the Garden of Eden and it's beauty all around him. There's supplies, there's provision all around him and this garden in eden is distinct somehow from the world outside maybe by the beauty maybe by the order but most particularly by these two trees the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Verse 10 says, A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. Which direction does water run? Down, downhill. Golden, gold stars for everybody. Gravity is still a thing, still a thing before the fall. So we get the sense that Eden isn't is, is elevated, it's the headwaters. Of these waters that flow out to bless and provide fertility for all the world. So God from Eden is, has this reservoir that's pumping out life-giving blessing, life-giving water to all of the earth. And he places Adam right at the center of it as a worshiping image bearer. You get, are you getting the picture? this beautiful elevated park with a garden in the middle of it, here is God's abode with humanity, right? He walks in the cool of the garden there. He's intimately related to Adam and Eve there. And from that relationship in that sanctuary worshiping context, blessing is meant to flow to the ends of the earth. Just as these waters are there pumping out reservoirs, of life-giving water, what God gave Adam and Eve to do, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It was the same mandate, but it was given to spiritual worship, worshiping image bearers so that as they give birth, as they multiply, as the nations are made, and as the borders of the garden and as the borders of Eden grow, so the blessing and the sanctuary of God would grow. And this is the root of dominion. The root of subduing all of the earth isn't that we would somehow like justify the ways that we abuse the environment, that we would justify slash and burn farming or whatever fracking is, you know, like we we would justify all these things. No, it is that God has given to men and women the job. As worship, with the capacity to worship and the context of worship to extend the spiritual blessing of God that Adam, in his innocence, without sin, with original righteousness before God, if he had taken, if he had walked with God, been obedient to the law that he knew. Taken from the tree of life, rather than the tree of, good, of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have sealed himself and all of his posterity, all of us coming after him, in that state of innocence, so that the, that humanity and the earth, creation itself, would blossom into everything that God intended or designed it to be. The context of worship. And it's, and it's significant. We don't have time to get into it. But if you go read the, the temple, the, 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 the um, tent of meeting and the tabernacle and then the temple narratives and, and Exodus and on through the first, uh, f- the other four books of the, uh, the first. Anyways, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those. If you go read those uh, and you see how God tells them, explicitly tells them how to decorate. You know, how do you decorate? What should be there? There should be pomegranates and cherubim. All of these things point back to the garden. That the garden is intended to be seen as a worshiping context. It's intended to be a sanctuary for worship. So, and that's why there's beauty all around. That's why they receive God's presence there. There. This idea of a river that flows out, there's, this is a, uh, there's a theme that runs through the Bible. You can see there's a spring called the Gihon, same word, that shows up underneath the temple. There's a river that's under the temple that's described, that's flowing out to the nations in Ezekiel's prophetic visions. That this river is not just water in the prophetic literature, but it but it symbolizes God's blessings to the nations. When the prophet Isaiah says that there's going to be streams in the desert, is a is a creational picture that God is going to bring blessings by His work and by His redemption, by His Messiah. That all the dry places where spiritually parched and people are worshiping anything and everything other than God. When the Messiah comes, he will turn their hearts back to himself. So much so that all of the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus. That the promise of God, of of the covenants that he makes. With Abraham particularly, but with the others, other covenants that these find not just fulfillment in Christ, but they find fulfillment in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So much so that Jesus, using this same imagery, in John chapter 7, on the last, and this is verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Of course, the Spirit is given at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So just see what happens. Trying so hard. Um, So the Adam is made On top, you know, perched atop this this paradise hill, with a with a worshiping context temple at the top of it, flowing out from Eden are rivers blessing the earth, and intended by the design of God, according to the image of God and the mandate that He gives humanity, flowing out from there also should have been worshiping image bearers who extend the reign and rule of Yahweh to the ends of the earth. So that Adam and Eve would honor God and then the next generation would honor God and their next generation would honor God and that they would steward the creation that God had given. And so that the blessings would flow not just in the water, but in the people. And more importantly, through the spiritual blessings that God would pour out generation to generation of people who are with the capacity to worship and with the capacity to worship as they go out, they make the context in which they find themselves the context of worship. And in this way, the garden that's there in Eden extends. Do you see the imagery? And of course, we know Adam and Eve in a short while do the exact opposite. And so instead of blessings rolling down the mountain of Eden, we have the curses of the covenant that Adam broke rolling down to every generation, rolling down to every single one of us where we have been received the guilt of Adam, the curse of Adam, and are born in this world full of its brokenness, full of its sin and its despair and its sickness and death. We have, we have received all of this cascading, cascading down to us. And if we are left to ourselves, we won't stop the avalanche. We will only exacerbate it and make it larger for the next generation. There has to be someone to come to stop the flood. And it is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. It is Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. That he is the second Adam, the Apostle Paul says. He's righteous and obedient in all the ways that Adam wasn't. And as such, he secures for his people the blessings that Adam should have secured. The relationship with God that Adam should have sealed by the the tree of life. Jesus lays hold of for us. The penalty of Adam's sin and the guilt of our own sin washed away and placed upon Christ as our only only possible substitute. And Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, he will have water springing up within him. That you, having been saved from the flood, Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the penalty of your sin. Now, given His Spirit, you, both individually and collectively, corporately, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple of God. This is what I want you to see. We have the capacity... We have the context, and the context is supposed to grow as the sanctuary grows. But the call of worship, the call. We have the capacity, we have the context, we have the call of worship. It's that as these rivers flow out to bless the nations, so ought spirit-indwelt believers pour out the gospel blessings to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes. That you have the Holy Spirit. You have the capacity for worship. You've been born again and renewed in order to truly worship. And now the context of worship, the context of worship is God's world. so that the call, the command to Adam is not substantially different in essence of Jesus' commission to his apostles and the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Behold, or lo, I am with you. Walking in the cool of the garden of the garden, walking in the cool of the day in the garden, now we have Christ with us in the spirit. And in this time, this already and not yet, where God has not yet fully brought in the kingdom, we have been given the Holy Spirit so that the, the blessing, the spiritual blessings of Christ, which the apostle Paul says we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, that those ought to be flowing out of us as worship. Declaring the worthiness of God together with the church on Sunday mornings. And in your cubicle on Mondays or whatever Monday morning has for you, worship because you are now in the context of the temple of God. Because you are the temple of God. And it is now imperative upon you, wherever you find yourself tomorrow, that you bring the, you inherently, inevitably, Christian, born again, spirit and welt Christian, it's inevitable that you bring the presence of Christ with you. The question is, will you really? Will you really bless the really cantankerous coworker that you have? Will you try to bring light and joy to the curmudgeon down the hall? Would you listen with patience when your boss is railing at you about something that you didn't do? Or will you feel that need to well up within you and defend yourself? Angrily. Will you seek to serve the outcast? Will you seize the opportunity to speak the message of Jesus? Will you seek wherever that is to make it a context of worship? That wherever that is, whether it be your home, your workplace, food line, the post office, that you would make it because you are there. And because you are there, the presence of God is there. And it ought to be a context of worship. Now, not everybody's going to get it. But you have the spirit bubbling up within you to pour out the blessings of Jesus in word and in deed, in your life, your attitude. Until finally, this promise... The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea from Habakkuk 2.14. That that will be realized at the end of the day. When you see the new heavens and the new earth and there's a new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is the, the makings of everything that this first beginning ought to have been. Everything that the garden there on Eden's mountaintop should have been. The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem is. We have no more need for a son for the glory of God will be our son. We will walk on streets of gold. You talk about a cultural development. Crystal sea and streets of gold. We will dwell with God and God will dwell with us. There will be no more sickness and no more sorrow. And no more sin and no more death. This was, this was the design of the Garden of Eden. And yet God allowed the fall. Sin came in. In order that He might demonstrate the triumph of His Son. Over the wickedest power of hell. So that Christ would receive all glory and all praise. So at that day. When the head of the serpent is finally, fully crushed and the body has quit its wriggling. You cut off the head of a snake, it still does its wiggling. In a lot of ways, that's what's going on right now. That's another sermon. When we see the full demonstration of the victory of Christ, we will worship because we have the capacity for worship. We will be in the eternal context of worship and we will have seen the call of worship fully realized that there would be a worshiping people from every tribe and every tongue, and every people group gathered in as the bride of Christ, living with him for eternity. So the question is, what is your worship? If it's inevitable, what are you worshiping? What are you declaring to be most worthy because that thing that you are declaring to be most worthy is the thing that is most greatly shaping you. So I think a a great deal of the failure of Christian discipleship has been the failure of Christian worship, not in the sense of worship services, but of Christians declaring the worthiness of Jesus above all. Because if you believe, you truly believe this about Jesus, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it's going to shape you. It's going to shape your early mornings and your middays. It's going to shape your interpersonal relationships. It's going to inevitably shape you. Because you have the capacity for worship. You're in the context of worship this morning. But the call of worship tomorrow is that wherever you find yourself, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that it would be a context for worship as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would take this, make it useful in your hands for your ends in these hearts, in these lives. I pray that by your power and your word, you would transform us into true worshipers declaring the worthiness of Jesus on Sunday mornings in song and in prayer and in the sitting under the preaching of the word, receiving the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but throughout the week that we would be worshiping people, that our homes would be little sanctuaries and our desks at work would be little worshiping sanctuaries that we would be ever abiding in Christ, And abiding in him, we might bear fruit. We pray this in his name. Amen.